The Apples of Idun by E. Louise Smith Once upon a time, three of the gods went on a journey. One was Thor and one was Loki. Loki was ugly and mean. The gods liked to walk over the hills and rocks. They could go very fast, for they were so big. The gods walked on and on. At last, they got very hungry. Then they came to a field with cattle. Thor killed a big ox and put the pieces into a pot. They made a big fire, but the meat would not cook. They made the fire bigger and bigger, but the meat would not cook. Then the gods were very cross. Someone said, Give me my share, and I will make the meat cook. The gods looked to see who was talking. There in an oak tree was a big eagle. The gods were so hungry that they said, Well, we will. The supper was ready in a minute. Then the eagle flew down to get his share. He took the four legs, and there was not much left but the ribs. This made Loki cross, for he was very hungry. He took a long pole to hit the eagle, but the pole stuck to the eagle's claws. The other end stuck to Loki. Then the eagle flew away. He did not fly high. He flew just high enough for Loki to hit against the stones. Loki said, Oh, please, let me go! Oh, please, let me go! But the eagle said, No, you tried to kill me. I will not let you go. And the eagle hit him against the stones. Loki said again, Please let me go! But the eagle said, No, I have you now. Then Loki knew the eagle was a giant and not a bird. This giant had a suit of eagle feathers. He was flying in his eagle suit when he saw Loki. Now the gods lived in a city named Asgard. In this city, Idun kept the beautiful golden apples. When the gods felt they were growing old, they ate the apples and were young again. The giant wanted to be like the gods, so he said to Loki, I will let you go, if you will get me the apples of Idun. But Loki said, I can't do that. So the eagle bumped him on the stones again. Then Loki said, I can't stand this. I will get the apples for you. Loki and the eagle went to the city. The eagle stayed by the gate, but Loki went into the city. He went up to Idun. She was putting the apples into a beautiful golden box. Loki said, Good morning, Idun. Those are beautiful apples. And Idun said, Yes, they are beautiful. I saw some just like them the other day, said Loki. Idun knew there were no other apples like these, and she said, That is strange. I would like to see them. Loki said, Come with me and I will show them to you. It is only a little way. Bring your apples with you. As soon as Idun was out of the gates, the eagle flew down. He picked her up in his claws. Then he flew away with her to his home. Day after day passed, and Idun did not come back. The gods did not have the golden apples to eat, so they began to get old. At last they said, Who let the apples go? Then Loki looked pale, and the gods said, Loki, you did it. And Loki said, Yes, I did. He did not tell a story that time. Then Loki said, I will get Idun and the apples back if I may have the falcon suit. The god said, You may have it if you will bring the apples back. Loki put on the falcon suit and flew away. He looked like a big bird flying. 
When Loki came to the giant's house, he was glad the giant was not there. He changed Idun into a knot and then flew away with the knot. When the giant came home, Idun was gone. The golden apples were gone too. Then the giant put on his eagle suit and flew after Loki. Loki heard the eagle coming. Loki flew faster. Poor Loki was all out of breath. The eagle flew faster and faster. Then the gods got on the walls to look for Loki. They saw him coming and the eagle after him. So they made fires on the walls. At last, Loki flew over the walls. Then the gods lighted the fires. The fires blazed up. The eagle flew into the fire and was burned. As soon as Loki put the nut down, it changed into Idun. The gods ate the beautiful golden apples and were young again. End of the Apples of Idun by E. Louise Smith The Baba Yaga from Russian Folk Tales A Choice Collection of Muscovite Folklore by W. R. S. Ralston Once upon a time there was an old couple. The husband lost his wife and married again. But he had a daughter by the first marriage, a young girl, and she found no favor in the eyes of her evil stepmother, who used to beat her and consider how she could get her killed outright. One day the father went away somewhere or other, so the stepmother said to the girl, Go to your aunt, my sister, and ask her for a needle and thread to make you a shift. Now the aunt was a Baba Yaga. Well, the girl was no fool, so she went to a real aunt of hers first, and says she, Good morning, auntie. Good morning, my dear. What have you come for? Mother has sent me to her sister to ask for a needle and thread to make me a shift. Then her aunt instructed her what to do. There is a birch tree there, niece, which would hit you in the eye. You must tie a ribbon round it. There are doors which would creak and bang. You must pour oil on their hinges. There are dogs which would tear you in pieces. You must throw them these rolls. There is a cat which would scratch your eyes out. You must give it a piece of bacon. So the girl went away and walked and walked till she came to the place. There stood a hut, and in it sat weaving the Baba Yaga the bony shanks. Good morning, auntie, says the girl. Good morning, my dear, replies the Baba Yaga. Mother has sent me to ask you for a needle and thread to make me a shift. Very well, sit down and weave a little in the meantime. So the girl sat down behind the loom, and the Baba Yaga went outside and said to her servant maid, Go and head to the bath and get my niece washed. And mind you look sharp after her. I want to breakfast off her. Well, the girl sat there in such a fright that she was as much dead as alive. Presently she spoke imploringly to the servant maid, saying, Kinswoman, dear, do please with the firewood instead of making it burn, and fetch the water for the bath in a sieve. And she made her a present of a handkerchief. The Baba Yaga waited a while, then she came to the window and asked, Are you weaving, niece? Are you weaving, my dear? Oh, yes, dear aunt, I'm weaving. 
so the baba yaga went away again and the girl gave the cat a piece of bacon and asked is there no way of escaping from here here's a come for you and a towel said the cat take them and be off the baba yaga will pursue you but you must lay your ear on the ground and when you hear that she is close at hand first of all throw down the towel it will become a wide wide river and if the baba yaga gets across the river and tries to catch you then you must lay your ear on the ground again and when you hear that she is closer at hand throw down the comb it will become a dense dense forest through that she won't be able to force her way anyhow the girl took the towel and the comb and fled the dogs would have rent her but she threw them the rolls and they let her go by the doors would have begun to bang but she poured oil on the hinges and they let her pass through the birch tree would have poked her eyes out but she tied the ribbon round it and it let her pass on and the cat sat down to the loom and worked away muddled everything about if it didn't too much weaving up came the baba yaga to the window and asked are you weaving niece are you weaving my dear i'm weaving dear aunt i'm weaving gruffly replied the cat the baba yaga rushed into the hut so that the girl was gone and took to beating the cat and abusing it for not having scratched the girl's eyes out long as i've served you said the cat you've never given me so much as a bone but she gave me bacon then the baba yaga pounced upon the dogs on the doors on the birch tree and on the servant maid and set to work to abuse them all and to knock them about then the dogs said to her long as we've served you you've never so much as pinched us a burnt crust but she gave us rolls to eat and the doors said long as we've served you you've never poured even a drop of water on our hinges but she poured oil on us the birch tree said long as i've served you you've never tied a single thread round me but she fastened a ribbon around me and the servant maid said long as i've served you you've never given me so much as a rag but she gave me a handkerchief the baba yaga bony of limb quickly jumped into her mortar set it flying along the pestle sweeping away the while all traces of its flight with a broom and set off in pursuit of the girl then the girl put her ear on the ground and when she heard that the baba yaga was chasing her and was now close at hand she flung down the towel and it became a wide such a wide river up came the baba yaga to the river and gnashed her teeth with spite then she went home for her oxen and drove them into the river the oxen drank up every drop of the river and then the baba yaga began the pursuit anew but the girl put her ear to the ground again and when she heard that the baba yaga was near she flung down the comb and instantly a forest sprang up such an awfully thick one the baba yaga began gnawing away at it but however hard she worked she couldn't gnaw her way through it so she had to go back again 
but by this time the girl's father had returned home and he asked where's my daughter she's gone to her aunt's replied her stepmother soon afterwards the girl herself came running home where have you been asked her father ah father she said mother sent me to aunt's to ask for a needle and thread to make me a shift but aunt's a baba yaga and she wanted to eat me and how did you get away daughter why like this said the girl and explained the whole matter as soon as her father had heard all about it he became wroth with his wife and shot her but he and his daughter lived on and flourished and everything went well with them End of the Baba Yaga Boyislav, youngest of twelve, from Myths and Folk Tales of the Russians, Western Slavs, and Magyars, by Jeremiah Curtin. Once there was a king who groaned many a day. Doctors came from far and near, but they could not cure him. At last his condition was such that one day all thought he must die. The following night he had a marvelous dream. It seemed to him that he was on Black Island, had freed three princesses, and straightway recovered. When he awoke, he felt a certain relief, but had almost forgotten the dream. The next night he had the same dream, and again on waking felt easier, but did not ascribe the relief to his dream. The third night he had no dream, but a vision, in which the three princesses appeared to him and said, Free us, and thou wilt recover, if not, thou wilt die. Then they vanished, and the terrified king felt such pain that he could barely wait till morning. He summoned his twelve sons in haste, and when he, when he had told them of his vision, he said in a sad voice, But how can I, poor man, go on a long journey to Black Island, of which I have never even heard? I will go instead of thee, said Boislav, the youngest son, with decision. We will all go, said the others looking angrily at Boislav, whom they hated with all their hearts, because he was his father's favorite. You cannot all leave me, and thou, Boislav, surely not, said the king, shaking his head. Who would there be to reign in my place? Let Boislav stay at home, said the eldest. Besides, he would merely be a hindrance to us on the road. I a hindrance, said Boislav, flushing up with anger and pity. Let me go, father. I will free the princesses alone. His brothers began to laugh at him, and then to dispute as to who should go to Black Island. Since they could not decide, the king said, I know that ye would all gladly serve me, but since some of you must stay at home, I will make six blank lots and six written ones. Whoever draws a written one will go, whoever a blank will remain. The princes were satisfied and drew lots. They were angry when Boislav drew a prize, and the king was sad, but he had given his word and could not withdraw it. That very day the princes set out and Boislav with them. While on dry land they were prosperous, it was worse when they entered a boat and knew not whither to turn. Boislav said they ought to go north, but his brothers laughed at him. When they had sailed many weeks in one direction and another without finding Black Island, they were glad to follow his advice, and the third day they arrived at the place. But so terrible was it that no one dared to land save Boislav. He took provisions and sprang on shore, telling his brothers to await his return. While light lasted, he ran up and down the island, but saw nothing except black rocks. He was forced to pass the night on a bare stone, but rose early, completely refreshed by sleep, and examined farther. One day passed, 
and a second. The third day appeared, and still he found nothing. At last in the evening he came to a large stone, which seemed to him hewn out by men's hands. He lifted with all his might, turned it over, and found a great dark opening from which a pleasant odor arose. He went down without delay, and soon found himself in a glorious garden, in which were three golden castles at a great distance. He gazed with astonishment, though there were things there without number such as he had never seen before. Still his attention was attracted first by three horses, which rushed around him three times in a wild gallop, and then vanished in the twinkle of an eye. Boyslav looked after them, and heard a voice saying, I welcome thee, Boyslav, youngest of twelve. He looked on every side, but could see no one. The voice cried out a second time, I welcome thee, Boyslav, youngest of twelve. Now he knew where the voice came from. But though he went in that direction and examined everything very carefully, he could see no one. Only after the voice had called much louder than the first and second time, I welcome thee, Boyslav, youngest of twelve, did he see behind a rock a famished little horse, so poor that he could count all its ribs. What dost thou want of me? asked Boyslav, not a little astonished that the horse knew him. Tis thy wish to free the three princesses, answered the horse. Then listen to what I advise. In the first castle thou wilt find the first princess, who will greet thee with kindness beyond measure, and offer thee food and drink. Eat with relish, but let not the princess eat with thee, or kiss thee. Take what is left of the food when thou hast eaten, and go to the second castle. There the second princess will greet thee with still greater kindness, and offer food and drink. Eat with relish, but for no reason let her eat with thee or kiss thee. Take what is left after eating, and go to the third castle, where the third princess will give thee the most kindly reception of all, and place food and drink before thee. Eat freely, but let not the princess eat with thee or kiss thee. Take what is left and come here to me. Is nothing more needed to gain their freedom? asked Boyslav. Nothing, answered the horse but thou must not speak a word all this time. That is very easy, thought Boyslav. But the horse said with great emphasis, Have a care, for to thee tis a question of life or death. Boyslav went with quick step to the first castle, where a princess of wonderful beauty ran forth toward him. I welcome thee, Boyslav, youngest of twelve, cried she with glad voice. How art thou here? Come to my chamber, let me give thee good cheer. What is thy father doing? How are thy brothers? Then she took his hand and seated him at the table, to which she brought the most savory food and drink, continually speaking of his home. But he gave no regard, and when she wished to eat with him, he thrust her aside without mercy. Then he seized what was left of the food and hurried away. The princess gave him the sweetest of names and stretched her hands toward him, but he acted as if he neither saw her nor heard her. At the second castle, a still more beautiful princess ran toward him, greeted him with greater gladness, led him into a chamber, seated him at a table, and brought the most savory food and drink, talking continually. She moved toward him, wishing to kiss him, but he thrust her aside very rudely, so that she fell to the floor. Before she could rise, he had taken what was left of the food and was gone. He had barely reached the third castle when a princess ran out to meet him, she was far more beautiful than the other two, and wished to fall on his neck straightway. He was amazed at her beauty, 
but keeping in mind the words of the horse, he thrust her away. But still she led him into the castle, seated him at a table in the loftiest chamber, and entertained him with the best food and drink. Boislav ate and drank heartily, and when the princess wished to eat, he pushed her aside so rudely that after staggering a few steps, she fell to the floor. Then quickly gathering the remnants of the food, he ran off, though the princess called him with heart-rending voice. When he came to, to the horse, he spread on the rock the remnants of food, which the horse devoured eagerly. What now? asked Boislav. Go for the three princesses, and bring them to thy brothers in the boat. They are free, for they are the horses which thou hast seen running around thee. A wicked sorceress enchanted them, so that twelve hours they were horses and twelve-hour princesses. Then come for me, or thou wilt suffer. Boislav did as the horse desired, and brought to his brothers the three princesses, who, with tearful eyes, thanked him for their liberation. When he returned to the horse, which said, with sad voice, Too bad, too bad. What has happened? asked Boislav. Thou art unfortunate, answered the horse. Thy departure from home was unfortunate, for know that thy brothers have gone. Then I must perish here, cried Boislav. Now thou wilt not perish, but hadst thou gone on the boat, thy death would be sure, for thy brothers had conspired to kill thee. Oh, the thankless wretches, cried Boislav. What shall I do now? If thou wilt obey me, said the horse, thou wilt gain thy object in time. Go now to the garden of the first castle and pluck four golden apples, but only four. Boislav went, and for the first time noticed the beauty of the whole garden. He went back and forth and would have soon forgotten the apples had he not heard the neighing of the horse. Now he saw the tree with golden apples and plucked four. Since they were so beautiful, he wanted more, but the horse neighed so fiercely that the whole castle trembled. His arm, which was stretched to the apples, dropped of itself, and he returned to the horse, which said, Now sit on me. Boislav did so, and the horse bore him soon to the shore of the sea, and said, Throw an apple in the sea. But a pity it is to lose it, said Boislav. Throw it in, repeated the horse, with stern voice, and Boislav obeyed. That moment a road five hundred miles long rose out of the sea. The horse stepped in the road and hurried along night and day. When the domes of the great city were seen in the distance, he said to Boislav, Now we are going to Red Island, to a king who has a very ugly daughter, but have no fear in the world of her. When she casts eyes on thee, say that thou art seeking a bride, but before choosing thou must consult thy father. Then the king will offer thee a present. Take nothing but a piece of rope for my bridle. Boislav promised obedience. When they came to Red Island, the road sank in the sea and the horse hurried on. Boislav left him on Boislav left him on the meadow outside the city and went straight to the king's castle, where he was courteously received. Where art thou going, noble prince? asked the king. In search of a bride, answered Boislav, and the king led him to his daughter. She was so ugly that Boislav was frightened. Does she not please thee? asked the king. Oh, she pleases me, said Boislav, pleases me greatly, but first I must talk with my father. The king smiled and led his guest to the supper chamber, where he was entertained in king's fashion. Boislav wished to go very soon, but the king took him first to the treasury and offered him much gold and silver. Thanks to thy grace, answered Boislav, 
My father has great treasures also, but if thou wilt make me some present, give me a piece of rope to repair my horse's bridle. Oh, I will give thee a splendid bridle and saddle, said the king. But Boyaslav answered, I wish no rich outfit on the road. It is an enticement to robbers. The king tried to persuade him, but could not. Then he had a rope brought, which was very slender, but very long, so that Boyaslav was hardly able to bear it away. After a kindly farewell to the king and the princess, he hastened outside the town, where the horse called from a distance, Thou hast done well. Now wind that rope around my body. Boyaslav opened the bundle, and a whole hour passed before he could wind the rope around the horse. When he had finished, they hurried to the sea, where the horse said, Throw a second apple in the sea. But it would be an eternal pity, said Boyaslav. I tell thee to throw the second apple into the sea, repeated the horse, with a stern voice. Boyaslav obeyed. That moment, five hundred miles of road rose out of the waves of the sea, along which the horse rushed like the wind night and day. When the domes of a great city were visible in the distance, he said to Boyaslav, Now we are coming to Green Island, ruled by a king who has a daughter, not beautiful and not ugly. Thou wilt say that thou art looking for a bride, but before choosing, thou must consult thy father. When thou art taking leave, the king will offer all kinds of jewels as a gift. Accept nothing, but ask for the cloth on the table from which thou hast eaten. Boyaslav promised this. When they had come to Green Island, the road sank into the sea, and the horse hurried toward the city. The horse remained in a meadow outside the gates. Boyaslav went to the palace, where he was welcomed by the king and presented to the princess. "'What brought thee to me?' asked the king. "'I am in search of a bride,' answered Boyaslav, looking at the princess, who seemed pleased at his words. "'Hast thou found one?' asked the king. "'Not yet,' replied Boyaslav. "'Does my daughter not please thee?' The princess blushed. "'Oh, she pleases me greatly,' said Boyaslav. "'But first I must talk with my father.' The king frowned at these words, and the princess was flushed with anger, but Boyaslav changed not, and was so courteous that the king grew ashamed, and conducted him to the supper chamber, where there was a small table covered with a poor-looking cloth, but upon which stood the choicest food and drink. Boyaslav ate with relish. When he had finished, the king took him to his treasure chamber, where he offered him the richest presents, but Boyaslav said, My father has many treasures and I prefer to travel unburdened. When the king insisted on his taking something as a keepsake, even if of the smallest value, Boyaslav said, Give me the cloth of the table on which I was entertained by thee. Oh, I should be ashamed to give such a thing, said the king. I will give thee another very skillfully woven. I want no other, answered Boyaslav, making ready to go. Then take it, said the king, giving the cloth with evident reluctance. Boyaslav parted with him and the princess and hastened to the horse, which called out from afar, Thou hast done well. Now sit on my back, we'll fare farther. Boyaslav sprang on the horse, and he raced over Green Island till he came to the sea. Throw the third apple in the sea, said the horse. But tis pity forever to lose it, said Boyaslav. Throw the third apple in the sea, I say, commanded the horse sternly, and Boyaslav obeyed. That moment, a road five hundred miles long rose from the waves of the sea. The horse ran like a flash, day and night, till they saw in the distance the domes of a great city. Now we are nearing White Island, said the horse, where a king reigns who has the most beautiful daughter under the sun. 
All the people on the island are asleep, for in the king's palace a taper is burning, which never burns out. Until someone quenches it, they must all sleep. Go to the palace, look at the princess as much as may please thee, then take the taper, but be careful that it does not go out on a sudden. If it is quenched, run to me with all speed, or thou wilt have trouble. Boyislav promised to obey faithfully. When they came to White Island, the road sank in the sea. Boyislav, leaving his horse before the gates of the city, hastened to the palace. The most luxuriant trees were growing all over the island, and beautiful flowers were in bloom. The city was splendid, the palace of silver and gold, but nowhere was a living creature to be seen. Boyislav moved on carefully through the empty streets, as if afraid of waking some person. When he entered the palace, he was amazed at its matchless beauty, but always as nothing in comparison with the beauty of the princess, who was sleeping on a dark purple couch in the last chamber. She was clothed in a light garment, white as new-fallen snow. Her dark hair fell on her white, slightly moving bosom. Her lips were half open, her teeth shone like pearls, and her whole figure was so full of charm that Boyislav held his breath. With head inclined, with crossed hands, he looked at her long, forgot the horse, the taper, and the whole world, not thinking of whether he was living. He only felt that the princess was beautiful. When he had waited a long time, he remembered the taper, looked around the room, saw it on the table, and saw on two couches the king and queen. He stepped quickly to the table to quench the taper and rouse the princess. For all at once he heard the horse neigh so fiercely that the palace trembled to its foundation. His hand dropped on itself, and he muttered, Thanks to thee, O horse. Had I quenched the taper, all would have risen, and who knows what might have come to me. He took the taper quickly and turned away, but when passing through the door he could not refrain from looking at the princess again. She seemed still more beautiful. He put the taper on the table, knelt and kissed her hand. With that her face became ruddy as a rose, and around her mouth appeared a smile. He sprang up, and as dark night had come, he thought of his return, seized the taper quickly, looked at the princess, wrote on the table, Boislav, youngest of twelve and went from the palace, taking care that the taper should not be quenched. He reached the gate of the city, but there the taper was blown out by the wind. That moment was heard in the city a shout, which grew louder the longer it lasted. But the trusty steed appeared, and bore him in a flash to the shore of the sea. Throw in the last apple, said the horse. Boislav obeyed without a murmur. That moment there rose from the waves a road which reached to firm land, and as dawn was appearing, they came to shore. Then the road sank in the sea. Now come down, said the horse, let me rest, and do thou rest too. The horse went to the green meadow, and Boyislav lay on the grass and mused on the princess of White Island. Since he was wearied greatly, he fell asleep, but thought of the princess so that he sighed from sorrow when the horse rused him and said, Let us go. Boyislav mounted in silence. They traveled till they saw domes of a great city. What city is this? inquired Boyislav. Seest not? asked the horse. That is thy birthplace. Sure enough. Go quickly, dear horse, that I may embrace my father. Hurry not, said the horse, for it would be better thee not to go. Why? asked Boyislav with wonder. Because thy father has uttered sentence of death against thee. I, I do not believe that replied Boyislav, shaking his head. 
and the horse was silent. Boislav's heart beat with joy when he entered the gates of his native place, but his joy was short-lived. He had scarcely passed one street when people began to gather around him, till at last an officer of the king's army seized the bridle of his horse and ordered the people who were standing around him to seize his arms. All rushed like hungry birds of prey on the terrified Boislav. What art thou doing? cried he, when at length he recovered himself. Do you not know that I am your prince? Prince or not, cried all, we know thee well enough to know that tomorrow thou wilt dance in the air. They took the unfortunate Boislav to the castle, where, by command of the king, he was cast into a dark dungeon, and his horse, which they all laughed at, was shut up in a pen. The officer who brought Boislav to the palace got a great reward, and went in high glee to the nearest inn to drink with his comrades. Why was the king enraged with his favorite son? Because shameless lies had been told by his other sons. When Boislav brought the three princesses of Black Island to the boat and returned for his horse, his brothers weighed anchor at once and sailed off. On the way, they forced the unfortunate princesses to promise an oath to tell the king that they were the liberators and to say that Boislav on Black Island had attached himself to a worthless woman and made sport of his old father. Meanwhile, they agreed to cast lots for the princesses. When the brothers declared their wish, the princesses said that they would not break their oaths, but could never be the wives of such men. The brothers paid small heed to this, for their hearts were hard. They were satisfied with having got rid of Boislav. They ordered the oarsmen to press on. As a favorable wind blew without stopping, they soon arrived safely on firm land, where they hired horses and hurried to their native place. The king, who had recovered as soon as the princesses on Black Island were freed, welcomed his sons and the princesses with tears in his eyes. But how he flushed up with anger when they told the story to which they had been forced by oath. He ordered the death of Boislav at once and offered great reward for his capture. The wicked brothers rubbed their hands with glee, but the princesses withdrew to the chambers given to them by the king and passed their time in silent grief. The king was astonished at this and wished to know what prince they loved. He would give his blessing at once and the proper income, but the princesses only shook their heads and the king asked his sons the reasons for the princess's sorrow. The young men evaded the question, saying that perhaps the princesses were homesick. At last they led the conversation to Boislav. The king flushed up with anger, which all his sons wanted, so as to avoid speaking of the princesses of Black Island, for they knew nothing about them. And now, when Boislav was in prison, they continued to excite the king to give an order forbidding anyone to ask mercy for him under the pain of death. Why should I endanger my life, thought everyone. The king, of course, knows why he wants to put his son to death. Many pitied the prince, but only one man shed tears. He was an old warrior who had once commanded the king's armies and was retained by a friend of the king. He did not believe that Boislav deserved death and resolved to ask pardon for him. Well, thought he, I shall not live till spring, and it is all the same whether I die a day earlier or later. I have been in danger of death times without number, and have never been even wounded. Perhaps I shall escape now. He went bravely to the king, who greeted him very kindly, as was his wont. What dost thou wish? asked he of the old man, who was silent. I ask mercy for Boislav, said he. How darest thou slight my order? asked the king angrily. 
Knowest not thou art doomed to death? I know, answered the old man with dignity, but I fear not death. I mean to say that thou art disgracing thyself by giving thy own blood to the hangman. The king was struck with these words, and walked up and down the room with bowed head. Who knows whether Boyislav is really guilty or not, said the old man, for the conduct of the princesses from Black Island is strange. Thou art right, and I will not give him to the hangman, but still he must die. I shall have him confined with the lions. Let them tear him. The old man made further effort, but the king would not be persuaded. When night came, Boyislav was taken secretly from prison and shut in with the lions. But the brothers were not satisfied yet. They told the king that Boyislav could easily escape and advised him to wall up the doors. The king consented, and the next day the doors were walled up, there remaining only a small opening in the other side. This was fortunate, for otherwise Boyislav must have perished for want of air. He looked at the lions without fear. They did not harm him. Then he took out the taper and the tablecloth, which he kept in his bosom, lighted the taper, laid the cloth on the ground, and asked for the choicest food. It appeared. He fed the lions first, then ate and drank himself. The lions ate at his feet in thankfulness. He lay on them and fell asleep. When awake, he played with the lions, who in a few days were tame, or thought of the princess on Y Island. In this way, his days passed quickly, and before he knew it, a whole year had gone. Meanwhile, the princess of Y Island traveled over the world with an army in search of her liberator. She had already visited many kings, but in no royal family had she found twelve sons. At last she came to the dominions of the old king and learned that he had twelve sons. Her heart jumped for joy, and she marched night and day till she appeared before the capital. Straightway she sent messengers to the king, asking him to send her that prince who had freed her and her whole kingdom. The king called the five princes who went with Boislav and asked if they had been on Y Island. Of course, answered the truthless princes, and the eldest one shamelessly added that he had freed its princess. Then hurry to her, said the king. He went. Where is the taper? asked the princess when he came, but he knew nothing of it. Thereupon the princess became so angry that she drew her sword and cut off his head with a blow. Again she sent the messenger with the announcement that if her liberator was not sent, she would turn the city into dust and ashes. I freed her, said the second prince to the frightened king, then go to her. When she asked the second prince about the taper, he could give no answer and lost his life. The messenger returned to the king and told him what had happened to the two princes. The three remaining ones were so terrified that they confessed the truth. The old man, Boislav's savior, now said to the king, I told thee Boislav was innocent, thou wouldst not believe me. Now see how thou hast saved thy city from destruction, for the princess will surely carry out her threat unless Boislav is delivered up. But how can I deliver him when he is dead? asked the king. He is not dead, replied the old man joyfully for there is still a little opening in the lion's den, and there is light there night and day. The king sprang up joyfully, hastened to the den, and had the walled-up doors opened. Boislav looked on this carelessly, and when the king implored him with tenderness to come out, that he forgave him all, he shook his head, saying, I will not go. It is not good enough for me here. But the princess will destroy my city, said the king. What princess? asked Boislav with curiosity. The princess from White Island. 
In silence, but with gladness in his eyes, Boyslav quenched the taper, folded the tablecloth, and taking both with him, walked out. When he went with the messenger to the princess, his heart beat with anxiety so that he could not raise his eyes when he stood before her. Thou art the man, exclaimed the princess joyfully. But when Boyslav knew not what to answer, she said reproachfully, Hast the ardor with which thou didst kiss me grown cold? It is not, murmured Boyslav, wishing to kiss the golden hem of her robe. The princess raised him up and kissing him said, This is the earnest of our betrothal. Boyslav was glad to respond, and now all returned to the castle, where feasting began, which was to be closed by the wedding of the princess and Boyslav. All were rejoiced except the princesses of Black Island, who were as sad as ever. The three princes who had gone to Black Island were in deathly terror. Boyslav, in the middle of the feast, grew sad, and when asked the reason, he inquired, Where is my trusty horse? No one could answer him, till at last one of the servants remembered that the horse had been shut up in a pen. To the great astonishment of all, Boyslav ran out to him, fell upon his neck, and shed tears of joy. Thou hast done well to come, said the horse sadly, or I should have perished with hunger, for the cord brought from Red Island is eaten. Every span of it became a bundle of hay. And now thou hast attained thy object, and I am needed no longer. Cut off my head. I cut off thy head? exclaimed Boyslav. Then thou dost not wish to free me, said the horse with chiding voice. Boyslav drew his sword and cut off the horse's head at one blow. The horse disappeared in an instant and in his stead appeared a beautiful prince, who fell upon Boyslav's neck and shed tears of joy. "'What is this?' asked Boyslav, full of astonishment. "'Come to supper,' said the prince. "'I will explain it all.' Both hurried to supper. Scarcely were they at the door when the youngest princess from Black Island fell into his arms, and the other two pressed his hands. When they had recovered from the first surprise, the prince said, "'I am the only son of a powerful king whose dominions are not far from Black Island.' I would not marry the daughter of a queen who was a witch, and she enchanted me, and the princesses of Black Island, the youngest of whom is my bride, were turned into horses twelve hours of each day. Boyslav freed the princesses first, and now has freed me. The moment I regained my form, the spell was removed from Black Island. All were delighted with Boyslav, but the king was thoughtful and seemed to ponder over important things. At last he summoned the three princes, who went with Boyslav to Black Island, and gave command to throw them to the lions. The lions tore them to pieces in an instant. Now came new festivities, and when all were finished, Boyslav went with his wife to White Island, and the liberated prince with his wife and sisters went to Black Island, where they celebrated at once their wedding and their liberation. End of Boyslav, Youngest of Twelve Legend of the Calle de la Quemada by Tomás Alibón Janvier. Not knowing what they are talking about, señor, many people will tell you the street of the burned woman got its name because, in the times when the Holy Office was helping the goodness of good people by making things very bad for the bad ones, a woman heretic, most properly and satisfactorily, was burned there. Such is not in the least the case. La quemadero of the Inquisition, where such sinners were burned that their sins might be burned out of them, was nowhere near the Calle de la Quemada, being at the western end of what is now the Alameda, in quite a different part of town. Therefore, it is a mistake to mix these matters, and the real truth is that this beautiful young lady did herself destroy her own beauty by setting fire to it. 
and she did it because she wanted to do it, that in that way she might settle some doubts which were in her heart. It all happened in the time of the good viceroy, Don Luis de Velasco, and so you will perceive, senor, that this story is more than three hundred years old. The name of this beautiful young lady who went to such lengths for her heart's assuring was Doña Beatriz de Espinosa, and the name of her father was Don Gonzalo de Espinosa y Quebra, who was a Spanish rich merchant who came to make himself still richer by his buyings and sellings in New Spain. Being arrived here, he took up his abode in a fine dwelling in the quarter of San Pablo, and the very street that is now called the Street of the Burned Woman because of what presently happened there. And if that street was called by some other name before that cruel happening, I do not know what it was. Doña Beatriz was as beautiful, senor, as the full moon and the best of the stars put together. And she was more virtuous than she was beautiful. And she was just twenty years old. Therefore, all the young gentlemen of the city immediately fell in love with her, in great numbers of the richest and noblest of them, their parents or other suitable persons, making the request for them, asked her father's permission to wed her, so that Doña Beatriz might have had any one of the twenty good husbands had any one of them been to her mind. However, being a lady very particular in the matter of husbands, not one of them was to her liking. Wherefore, her father did as she wanted him to do and refused them all. But... On a day, matters went differently. At a great ball given by the viceroy in the palace, Doña Beatriz found what her heart had been waiting for. And this was a noble Italian young gentleman who instantly, as all the others had done, fell in love with her, and with whom, as she had never before done with anybody, she instantly fell in love. The name of this young gentleman was Don Martin Cipoli, and he was the Marquess de Pinamonte y Franticello, and he was as handsome as he was lovable and of a most jealous nature, and as quarrelsome as it was possible for anybody to be. Therefore, as I have said, senor, Doña Beatriz at once fell in love with him with all the heart of her, and Don Martina once fell in love with her also, and so violently that his jealousy of all her other lovers set off his quarrelsomeness at such a rate that he did nothing in his spare time when he was not making love to Doña Beatriz, but affront and anger them, so that he might have the pleasure of finding them at the point of his sword. Now Doña Beatriz, senor, was a young lady of a most delicate nature, and her notions about love were precisely the same as those which are entertained by the lady angels. Therefore, Don Martin's continual fightings very much worried her, raising in her heart the dread that so violent a person must be of a coarse and carnal nature, and that, being of such a nature, his love for her came only from his beblindment by the outside beauty of her, and was not, as her own love was, the pure love of soul for soul. Moreover, she was pained by his being laid on by his jealousy, for which there was no just occasion to injure seriously and even mortally, so many were the young men. Therefore, Doña Beatriz, after much thinking and a great deal of praying over the matter, made her mind up to destroy her own beauty, that in that way she might pull all the jealousies out of the question, and at the same time prove to her heart satisfying that Don Martin's love for her had nothing to do with the outside beauty of her and truly was the pure love of soul for soul. And Doña Beatriz, senor, did do that very thing. Her father being gone abroad from his home, and all of the servants of the house being on one excuse or another sent out of it, she brought into her own chamber a brazier filled with burning coals, and this she set beneath an image of the blessed Santa Lucia that she had hung upon the wall to give strength to her in case, in doing herself so cruel an injury, her own strength should fail. Santa Lucia, as you will remember, senor, with her own hands plucked out her own wonderfully beautiful eyes, and sent them on a platter to the young gentleman who had troubled her devotions by telling her that he could not live without them, 
and with them sent the message that, since she had given him the eyes that he could not live without, he pleased would let her and her devotions alone. Therefore, it was clear that Santa Lucia was the saint best fitted to oversee the matter that Doña Beatriz had in hand. But in regard to her eyes, Doña Beatriz did not precisely pattern herself upon Santa Lucia, knowing that without them she could not see how Don Martin stood the test that she meant to put him to, and also very likely remembering that Santa Lucia miraculously got her eyes back again and got them back even more beautiful than when she lost them, because you see, they came back filled with a light of heaven where the angels had been taking care of them until they should be returned. Therefore, Doña Beatriz bound a wet handkerchief over her eyes that she might keep the sight in them to see how Don Martin stood his testing, and also that she might spare the angels the inconvenience of caring for them. And then she fanned and fanned the fire in the brazier until the purring of it made her know the coals were in a fierce blaze. And then, senor, she plunged her beautiful face down into the very heart of the glowing coals. And it was at that same instant, though Doña Beatriz, of course, did not know about that part of the matter, that the street of the burned woman got its name. Being managed under the guidance and with the approval of Santa Lucia, the cruelty that this virtuous young lady put upon her own beauty could lead only to a good end. Presently, when the bitter pain of her burning had passed a little, Doña Beatriz bade Don Martin come to her, and he, coming, found her clad in virgin white and wearing over her poor burned face a white veil. And then the test that Doña Beatriz had planned for her heart's assuring was made. Little by little, Doña Beatriz raised her white veil slowly, and little by little, Don Martin saw the face of her, and the face of her was more shudderingly hideous. Her two beautiful eyes, perfectly alight and alive amidst that distorted deathliness, was what made the shudder of it than anything that he had ever dreamt of in his very worst dream. Therefore, with a great joy and a thankfulness, Don Martin immediately espoused Doña Beatriz, and thenceforth and always, most reasonably ceasing to love the outside beauty of her, gave her as she wanted him to give her the pure love of soul for soul. For myself, señor, I think that the conduct of that young lady was unreasonable, and that Don Martin had just occasion to be annoyed. End of Legend of the Calle de la Quemada The Fairy Frog A Swazi Tale from Fairy Tales from South Africa by E. J. Burhill and J. B. Drake. Tombiende was the most beautiful girl in her father's kingdom. She had milk-white teeth and sparkling eyes. Her figure was perfect and very gracefully turned, and no one could lead the dance half so well as she. Besides, you could not help noticing her the moment she appeared, for she was taller than all her sisters and carried her head like a true princess. Her parents looked on her daily with joy and pride. They called her Tombi Ende, the tall maiden, and expected she would one day be a mighty queen. But no one has an altogether happy lot. And though Tombiende was tall and beautiful, and had the gayest and most wonderful handkerchiefs with which to deck herself, and more beads and bracelets than any other girl in the countryside, this only gave her the more trouble. For none of her sisters were as pretty as she, or as much admired. And as time went on, they grew more and more jealous. At last, they decided that Tombe Ende must die, 
or no one would ever notice them at all. So they made a plan to kill their sister, as if by accident. One day they all came to her and said, Let us go and get red ochre out of the great pit. There is none left in the kraal at all. So every maiden shouldered her pick, and they walked together singing and laughing for many miles. At last they reached a great red pit many feet deep, surrounded by tall grass on every side. There they stopped. Each girl leapt down in turn, dug out a lump of the precious red earth, and then jumped up again. They all stood round the pit waiting for one another. But directly Tombe Ende jumped down, every one of those wicked girls seized her pick and threw earth upon her as fast as she could, till poor Tombe Ende was buried alive. Then they ran away, leaving her for dead, for the red earth is very heavy. But Tombe Ende was not dead. The people who passed heard screams coming from the pit, and sometimes a voice calling, I am Tombe Ende. I am not dead, I am like one of yourselves. Two men turned out of the path and looked down into the great hole, but all they could see was the red earth glistening in the sun. So they turned away and walked on. The wicked sisters, meanwhile, went back to their father's kraal and told all whom they met, Tombe Ender is dead. She fell down in the red ochre pit and was smothered. But when the king came to question them, they grew confused and could not tell their tale. So he chopped off their heads there and then with a great battle-axe and gave their bodies to the vultures. And that would have been the end of them had not a dear good old fairy come along who knew that Tombe Ende was not dead and was sorry to see her sisters so severely punished. She went to the bodies and sprinkled them with medicine from her magic calabash. The sisters sat up at once, alive and well, rubbing their eyes. Take the girls away and keep them out of the king's sight till Tombe Ende returns, said the fairy, and everyone was only too glad to obey her. Tombe Ende lay in the red ochre pit for many hours, and thought no one would ever rescue her. But at evening she heard a great croaking above her. Looking up, she saw an enormous frog blinking his little eyes at the edge of the pit. Beautiful princess, said he, what are you doing here? Alas, said Tombeende, my sisters are jealous of me and hate me, and they have left me here and thrown earth upon me so that I cannot get out. I will help you, said the frog. He jumped into the pit, opened his big mouth, and swallowed the princess entirely. Then he jumped up again and landed safely on the path above, the princess still inside him. Forthwith, the frog set out on his travels. He hopped all night, carefully avoiding any kraals by the way, for a frog brings bad luck and is not welcome in human dwellings. Whenever he passed a bird, he sang, Do not swallow me, I carry the princess Tombeende. And no creature touched him. The next morning, 
They narrowly escaped a great danger, for they met a horrible ogress. She had heard that Tombe Ende was still alive and defenceless, and had already been to the red ogre pit and found it empty. Now she was searching for her everywhere in savage haste. But luckily she paid no attention to a big frog, and went her way without heeding its appearance. At midday the frog stopped, opened his mouth, and let the princess walk out. Then he said, Wait here and rest. By and by we will go on again. He also provided food. He merely croaked, and delicious porridge appeared in a little brown pot, all ready for the princess to eat. Tombe Ende ate, and then slept under the bushes, for she was very tired. Towards evening, the frog swallowed her again, and they set forth once more on their journey. They had decided not to go back to her father's kraal for fear of her jealous sisters, but journeyed towards the home of her grandmother, where she was sure of every welcome. They travelled for days, resting in the heat, but never stopping all night long, and one morning they arrived at the grandmother's kraal. The frog went up to the door of the chief hut and sang loudly, I am carrying Tombe Ende, the beautiful princess, whom they killed in the red pit. The old grandmother came out, saying, Who is this speaking? Who knows what has become of my darling Tombe Ende? I know all about her, said the frog. Bring clean mats, spread them before me, and you will see. All the women brought fine new mats and put them before the frog. When all was ready, the frog just said, Ooh, ooh, oh! And in a moment, Tombe Ende herself was before them, as tall and beautiful as ever. Great was the joy of all, and no one could hear her tale often enough or her praises of the wonderful frog. What can we do for you as a reward for your kindness? said the grandmother to the frog. Is there nothing we can give you? I only ask you to kill two oxen and two bulls, said the frog, and let us have a feast. So a great feast was held, and the frog sat by the princess's side and had great honour. Next morning he had disappeared, and though the princess searched for him all round the kraal, he could nowhere be found. The grandmother knew that Tombe Ende was now in no danger at home, so she sent a message to her father to tell him of his daughter's safety. The king was much delighted, and at once dispatched Tombe Ende's brother to fetch her home. He rested a few days at the kraal, for the journey was long, and then they both set out on their return. Now the rains had been short that year, and many streams were dry. The sun was very hot, and after hours of walking, the princess and her brother were very thirsty. Nowhere could they find the accustomed springs, for the ground was harder than brick dried in an oven, and the watercourses were dry. They went on and on till they were fainting with the heat. Suddenly 
they met a stranger, an immensely big man, who stood right across the path. Except for his size, he was like other men, and they did not at first distrust him. What do you want? said he in a deep bass voice, which rumbled like thunder. We are looking for water, said the prince. All the springs are dried up, and we are yet many days from home. If I give you water, said the giant, what will you give me in return? Ask for anything in my father's kingdom, said the prince. Give me this beautiful princess, said the giant with a wicked smile. If not, you will die of thirst. All the springs are dry within three days' journey. The brother and sister were in dismay. But although the prince hated the idea of giving his sister to a stranger, they were both so helpless that he could only consent. The giant chuckled and led the way to a great fig tree by the side of the dry watercourse. He struck his stick upon the ground, and out of the very roots of the tree sprang a fountain clear as the moon and cool as the depths of the forest. They all drank eagerly and long, and it was only after some minutes that the princess lifted her head and looked towards the giant. She shrieked long and loud, for the giant had turned into a most terrible Izuma, monstrous and misshapen, covered with red hair and glaring at her with his little wild eyes. His long tail lay behind him on the grass, and his white pointed teeth showed between his thick lips. The prince looked up at once, and he also saw in what great peril his sister lay. The ogre was terribly strong, and no fighting could save them. He simply glared at them, his eyes full of evil pleasure. Suddenly the princess heard a well-known croak, and right out of the water sprang a great frog. There is my preserver, said Tom Beende. Help us, frog, no one is so clever and wise as you. The frog advanced right in front of the ogre, who looked at him with disdain. He just opened his mouth and said, Boo, oh, boo, oh. In one minute he had swallowed the ogre right up, tail and all, and then he disappeared into the fountain. There he stayed till the ogre was drowned. When he came out again, the water had dried up, and the ogre lay buried among the roots of the great fig tree. Ah, frog, how can I thank you enough, said the princess. This time you must not disappear. You must come home with us. In three days they reached her father's kraal. The king's guard stood in order to greet them, gloriously arrayed in otter skins, with shields and assegais. Her father stood at their head and hailed them both with joy. But what, said her father, is that horrible frog at your side? I must have the wretch killed. Do not kill him, father, said Tombeende. He saved my life, twice. And at those very words, the frog suddenly grew into a handsome man, taller than Tombe and herself. He was in full warlike array, with shield and assegai, and a great plume of white ostrich feathers on his head. 
Anyone could see at once that he was a prince. All greeted him with loud shouts. Only Tombe Ende was not so very much surprised. I am no frog, said the prince. My father is a great chief. The ogre from whom I rescued the princess overcame me by witchcraft in former days. But now that I have won the love of a maiden, I am once more free. Give me the hand of your daughter in marriage, and one hundred cattle shall be yours. A few days later, Tombe Ende married the fairy frog, and all will acknowledge that it was a reward he well deserved. As for the wicked sisters, the king forgave them in his great joy, and Tombe Ende forgot all her troubles in a new home. End of The Fairy Frog, A Swazi Tale by E.J. Boerhill and J.B. Drake The Apples of Idun by E. Louise Smith This is a LibriVox. Once upon a time, three of the gods went on a journey. One was Thor and one was Loki. Loki was ugly and mean. The gods liked to walk over the hills and rocks. They could go very fast, for they were so big. The gods walked on and on. At last, they got very hungry. Then they came to a field with cattle. Thor killed a big ox and put the pieces into a pot. They made a big fire, but the meat would not cook. They made the fire bigger and bigger, but the meat would not cook. Then the gods were very cross. Someone said, Give me my share and I will make the meat cook. The gods looked to see who was talking. There in an oak tree was a big eagle. The gods were so hungry that they said, Well, we will. The supper was ready in a minute. Then the eagle flew down to get his share. He took the four legs, and there was not much left but the ribs. This made Loki cross, for he was very hungry. He took a long pole to hit the eagle, but the pole stuck to the eagle's claws. The other end stuck to Loki. Then the eagle flew away. He did not fly high. He flew just high enough for Loki to hit against the stones. Loki said, Oh, please let me go! Oh, please let me go! But the eagle said, No, you tried to kill me. I will not let you go. And the eagle hit him against the stones. Loki said again, Please let me go! But the eagle said, no, I have you now. Then Loki knew the eagle was a giant and not a bird. This giant had a suit of eagle feathers. He was flying in his eagle suit when he saw Loki. Now the gods lived in a city named Asgard. In this city, Idun kept the beautiful golden apples. When the gods felt they were growing old, they ate the apples and were young again. The giant wanted to be like the gods. So he said to Loki, I will let you go, if you will get me the apples of Idun. But Loki said, I can't do that. So the eagle bumped him on the stones again. Then Loki said, I can't stand this. I will get the apples for you. Loki and the eagle went to the city. The eagle stayed by the gate, but Loki went into the city. He went up to Idun. She was putting the apples into a beautiful golden box. Loki said, Good morning, Idun. 
those are beautiful apples. And Idun said, yes, they are beautiful. I saw some just like them the other day, said Loki. Idun knew there were no other apples like these, and she said, that is strange. I would like to see them. Loki said, come with me and I will show them to you. It is only a little way. Bring your apples with you. As soon as Idun was out of the gates, the eagle flew down. He picked her up in his claws. Then he flew away with her to his home. Day after day passed, and Idun did not come back. The gods did not have the golden apples to eat, so they began to get old. At last they said, Who let the apples go? Then Loki looked pale, and the gods said, Loki, you did it. And Loki said, Yes, I did. He did not tell a story that time. Then Loki said, I will get Idun and the apples back if I may have the falcon suit. The god said, You may have it if you will bring the apples back. Loki put on the falcon suit and flew away. He looked like a big bird flying. When Loki came to the giant's house, he was glad the giant was not there. He changed Idun into a knot and then flew away with the knot. When the giant came home, Idun was gone. The golden apples were gone too. Then the giant put on his eagle suit and flew after Loki. Loki heard the eagle coming. Loki flew faster. Poor Loki was all out of breath. The eagle flew faster and faster. Then the gods got on the walls to look for Loki. They saw him coming and the eagle after him. So they made fires on the walls. At last, Loki flew over the walls. Then the gods lighted the fires. The fires blazed up. The eagle flew into the fire and was burned. As soon as Loki put the nut down, it changed into Idun. The gods ate the beautiful golden apples and were young again. End of the Apples of Idun by E. Louise Smith Recorded by Michelle Lee
The Little Match Girl by E. Louise Smith It was very cold. The snow fell, and it was almost dark. It was the last day of the year. A little match girl was running in the street. Her name was Gretchen. She had no hat on. Her feet were bare. When she left home, she had on some big slippers of her mama's, but they were so large that she lost them when she ran across the street. Gretchen had a lot of matches in her old apron. She had a little bunch in her hand, but she could not sell her matches. No one would buy them. Poor little Gretchen. She was cold and hungry. The snow fell on her curly hair, but she did not think about that. She saw lights in the houses. She smelled good things cooking, she said to herself. This is the last night of the year. Gretchen got colder and colder. She was afraid to go home. She knew her papa would whip her if she did not take some money to him. It was as cold at home as in the street. They were too poor to have a fire. They had to put rags in the windows to keep out the wind. Gretchen did not even have a bed. She had to sleep on a pile of rags. She sat down on a doorstep. Her little hands were almost frozen. She took a match and lighted it to warm her hands. The match looked like a little candle. Gretchen thought she was sitting by a big stove. It was so bright. She put the match near her feet to warm them. Then the light went out. She did not think that she was by the stove anymore. Gretchen lighted another match. Now she thought she could look into a room. In this room was a table. A white cloth and pretty dishes were on the table. There was a roast turkey, too. It was cooked and ready to eat. The knife and fork were in his back. The turkey jumped from the dish and ran to the little girl. The light went out, and she was in the cold and dark again. Gretchen lighted another match. Then she thought she was sitting by a Christmas tree. Very many candles were on the tree. It was full of pretty things. Gretchen put up her little hands. The light went out. The lights on the Christmas tree went up, up until she saw they were the stars. Then she saw a star fall. Someone is dying, said little Gretchen. Her grandma had been very good to the little girl, but she was dead. The grandma had said, When a star falls, someone is going to God. The little girl lighted another match and made a big light. Gretchen thought she saw her grandma. She never looked so pretty before. She looked so sweet and happy. Oh, Grandma, said the little girl, take me. When the light goes out, you will go away. The stove and the turkey and the Christmas tree all went away. Then Gretchen lighted a bunch of matches. She wanted to keep her grandma with her. The matches made it very light. The grandma took the little girl in her arms. They went up, up where they would never be cold or hungry. They were with God. The next day came. Some men found a little girl in the street. She was dead. In her hands were the burned matches. They said, poor little thing. She froze to death. They did not know how happy she was in heaven. End of the Little Match Girl
by Louise E. Smith. The Mirror of Matsuyama, a story of old Japan, from Japanese fairy tales, compiled by Yei Theodora Ozaki. Long ago in old Japan, there lived in the province of Echigo, a very remote part of Japan, even in these days, a man and his wife. When the story begins, they had been married for some years and were blessed with one little daughter. She was the joy and pride of both their lives, and in her they stored an endless source of happiness for their old age. What golden letter days in their memory were these that had marked her growing up from babyhood? The visit to the temple when she was just thirty days old, her proud mother carrying her, robed in ceremonial kimono, to be put under the patronage of the family's household god. Then her first dolls festival, when her parents gave her a set of dolls and their miniature belongings to be added to as year succeeded year. And perhaps the most important occasion of all, on her third birthday, when her first obi, a broad brocade sash of scarlet and gold, was tied around her small waist, a sign that she had crossed the threshold of girlhood and left infancy behind. Now that she was seven years of age and had learned to talk and to wait upon her parents in those several little ways so dear to the hearts of fond parents, their cup of happiness seemed full. There could not be found in the whole of the island empire a happier little family. One day there was much excitement in the home, for the father had been suddenly summoned to the capital on business. In these days of railways and jinrikshas and other rapid modes of travelling, it is difficult to realise what such a journey as that from Matsuyama to Kyoto meant. The roads were rough and bad, and ordinary people had to walk every step of the way, whether the distance were one hundred or several hundred miles. Indeed, in those days, it was as great an undertaking to go up to the capital as it is for a Japanese to make a voyage to Europe now. So the wife was very anxious while she helped her husband get ready for the long journey, knowing what an arduous task lay before him. Vainly, she wished that she could accompany him, but the distance was too great for the mother and child to go, and besides that, it was the wife's duty to take care of the home. All was ready at last, and the husband stood in the porch with his little family round him. Do not be anxious. I will come back soon, said the man. While I am away, take care of everything, especially of our little daughter. Yes, we shall be right, but you, you must take care of yourself and delay. Not a day in coming back to us, said the wife, while the tears fell like rain from her eyes. The little girl was the only one to smile, for she was ignorant of the sorrow of parting and did not know that going to the capital was at all different from walking to the next village, which her father did very often. She ran to his side and caught hold of his long sleeve to keep him a moment. Father, I will be very good while I am waiting for you to come back, so please bring me a present. As the father turned to take a last look at his weeping wife, and smiling, eager child, he felt as if someone were pulling him back by the hair, so hard was it for him to leave them behind, and for they had never been separated before. But he knew that he must go, 
for the call was imperative. With a great effort, he ceased to think, and resolutely turning away, he went quickly down the little garden and out through the gate. His wife, catching up the child in her arms, ran as far as the gate and watched him as he went down the road between the pines till he was lost in the haze of the distance, and all she could see was his quaint peaked hat, and at last that vanished too. Now father has gone. You and I must take care of everything till he comes back, said the mother as she made her way back into the house. Yes, I will be very good, said the child, nodding her head. And when father comes home, please tell him how good I have been, and then perhaps he will give me a present. Father is sure to bring you something that you want very much. I know, for I asked him to bring you a doll. You must think of father every day and pray for a safe journey till he comes back. Oh, yes, when he comes home again, how happy I shall be, said the child, clapping her hands, and her face growing bright with joy at the glad thought. It seemed to the mother, as she looked at the child's face, that her love for her grew deeper and deeper. Then she set to work to make winter clothes for the three of them. She set up her simple wooden spinning wheel and spun the thread before she began to weave the stuffs. In the intervals of her work, she directed the little girl's games and taught her to read the old stories of her country. Thus did the wife find consolation in work during the lonely days of her husband's absence. While the time was thus slipping quickly by in the quiet home, the husband finished his business and returned. It would have been difficult for anyone who did not know the man well to recognize him. He had traveled day after day, exposed to all weathers, for about a month altogether, and was sunburned to bronze. But his fond wife and child knew him at a glance, and flew to meet him from either side, each catching hold of one of his sleeves in their eager greeting. Both the man and his wife rejoiced to find each other well. It seemed a very long time, old Till, the mother and child helping. His straw sandals were untied, his large umbrella hat taken off, and he was again in their midst, in the old familiar sitting room that had been so empty while he was away. As soon as they had sat down on the white mats, the father opened a bamboo basket that he had brought in with him and took out a beautiful doll and a lacquer box full of cakes. Here, he said to the little girl, is a present for you. It is a prize for taking care of mother and the house so well while I was away. Thank you, said the child as she bowed her head to the ground and then put out her hand just like a little maple leaf with its eager widespread fingers to take the doll and the box, both of which, coming from the capital, were prettier than anything she had ever seen. No words can tell how delighted the little girl was. Her face seemed as if it would melt with joy, and she had no eyes and no thought for anything else. Again, the husband dived into the basket and brought out, this time, a square wooden box, carefully tied up with red and white string, and handing it to his wife, said, And this is for you. The wife took the box, and opening it carefully, took out a metal disc with a handle attached. One side was bright and shining like a crystal, 
and the other was covered in raised figures of pine trees and stalks which had been carved out of its smooth surface in lifelike realty never had she seen such a thing in her life for she had been born and bred in the rural province of echigo she gazed into the shining disc and looking up with surprise and wonder pictured on her face she said i see somebody looking at me in this round thing what is it that you have given me the husband laughed and said why it is your own face that you see what i have given you is called a mirror and whoever looks into its clear surface can see their own form reflected there although there are none to be found in this out-of-the-way place yet they have been in use in the capital from the most ancient time there the mirror is considered a very necessary requisite for a woman to possess there is an old proverb that as the sword is the soul of a samurai so is the mirror the soul of a woman and according to popular tradition a woman's mirror is an index to her own heart if she keeps it bright and clear so is her heart pure and good it is also one of the treasures that form the insignia of the emperor so you must lay great store by your mirror and use it carefully the wife listened to all her husband told her and was pleased at learning so much that was new to her she was still more pleased at the precious gift his token of remembrance while he had been away if the mirror represents my soul i shall certainly treasure it as a valuable possession and never will i use it carelessly saying so she lifted it as high as her forehead in grateful acknowledgment of the gift and then shut it up in its box and put it away the wife saw that her husband was very tired and set about serving the evening meal and making everything as comfortable as she could for him it seemed to the little family as if they had not known what true happiness was before so glad were they to be together again and this evening the father had much to tell of his journey and of all he had seen at the great capital time passed away in the peaceful home and the parents saw their fondest hopes realized as their daughter grew from childhood into a beautiful girl of sixteen as a gem of priceless value is held in its proud owner's hand so had they reared her with unceasing love and care and now their pains were more than doubly rewarded what a comfort she was to her mother as she went about the house taking her part in the housekeeping and how proud her father was of her for she daily reminded him of her mother when he had first married her but alas in this world nothing lasts forever even the moon is not always perfect in shape but loses its roundness with time and flowers bloom and then fade so at last the happiness of this family was broken up by a great sorrow the good and gentle wife and mother was one day taken ill in the first days of her illness the father and daughter thought it was only a cold and were not particularly anxious but the days went by and still the mother did not get better she only grew worse and the doctor was puzzled for in spite of all he did the poor woman grew weaker day by day the father and daughter were stricken with grief and day or night the girl never left her mother's side 
but in spite of all their efforts, the woman's life was not to be saved. One day, as the girl sat near her mother's bed, trying to hide with a cheery smile the gnawing trouble at her heart, the mother roused herself and, taking her daughter's hand, gazed earnestly and lovingly into her eyes. Her breath was laboured, and she spoke with difficulty. My daughter, I am sure that nothing can save me now. When I am dead, promise me to take care of your dear father and try to be a good and dutiful woman. Oh, mother, said the girl, as the tears rushed to her eyes, you must not say such things. All you have to do is make haste and get well. That will bring the greatest happiness to father and myself. Yes, I know, and it is a comfort to me in my last days to know how greatly you long for me to get better. But it is not to be. Do not look so sorrowful, for it was so ordained in my previous state of existence that I should die in this life just this time, knowing this. I am quite resigned to my fate, and now I have something to give you whereby to remember me when I am gone. Putting her hand out, she took from the side of the pillow a square wooden box tied up with a silken cord and tassels. Undoing this very carefully, she took out of the box the mirror that her husband had given her years ago. When you were still a little child, your father went up to the capital and brought me back as a present this treasure. It is called a mirror. This I give you before I die. If, after I have ceased to be in this life, you are lonely and long to see me sometime, then take out this mirror, and in the clear and shining surface you will always see me. So will you be able to meet with me often and tell me all your heart? And though I shall not be able to speak, I shall understand and sympathize with you whatever may happen in the future. With these words, the dying woman handed the mirror to her daughter. The mind of the good mother seemed to be now at rest and sinking back without another word, her spirit passed quietly away that day. The bereaved father and daughter were wild with grief, and they abandoned themselves to their bitter sorrow. They felt it to be impossible to take leave of the loved woman who till now had filled their whole lives and to commit her body to the earth. But this frantic burst of grief passed, and when they took possession of their own hearts again, crushed through they were in resignation. In spite of this, the daughter's life seemed to her desolate, her love for her dead mother did not grow less with time, and so keen was her remembrance that everything in daily life, even the falling of the rain and the blowing of the wind, reminded her of her mother's death and of all they had loved and shared together. One day, when her father was out and she was fulfilling her household duties alone, her loneliness and sorrow seemed more than she could bear. She threw herself down in her mother's room and wept as if her heart would break. Poor child, she longed just for one glimpse of the loved face, one sound of the voice calling her pet name, or for one moment's forgetfulness of the aching void in her heart. Suddenly, she sat up, 
Her mother's last words had rung through her memory, hitherto dulled by grief. Oh, my mother told me when she gave me the mirror as a parting gift that whenever I looked into it, I should be able to meet her, to see her. I had nearly forgotten her last words. How stupid I am. I will get the mirror now and see if it can possibly be true. She dried her eyes quickly and going to the cupboard took out the box that contained the mirror. Her heart beating with expectation as she lifted the mirror out and gazed into its smooth face. Behold, her mother's words were true. In the round mirror before her, she saw her mother's face, but oh, the joyful surprise! It was not her mother thin and wasted by illness, but the young and beautiful woman as she remembered her far back in the days of her own earliest childhood. It seemed to the girl that the face in the mirror must soon speak, almost that she heard the voice of her mother telling her again to grow up a good woman and a dutiful daughter. So earnestly did the eyes in the mirror look back into her own. It is certainly my mother's soul that I see. She knows how miserable I am without her, and she has come to comfort me. Whenever I long to see her, she will meet me here. How grateful I ought to be. And from this time, the weight of sorrow was greatly lightened for her young heart. Every morning to gather strength for the day's duties before her, and every evening for consolation before she lay down to rest did the young girl take out the mirror and gaze at the reflection which in the simplicity of her innocent heart she believed to be her mother's soul. Daily she grew in the likeness of her dead mother's character and was gentle and kind to all and a dutiful daughter to her father. A year spent in mourning had thus passed away in the little household when by the advice of his relation the man married again and the daughter now found herself under the authority of a stepmother. It was a trying position, but her days spent in the recollection of her own beloved mother and of trying to be what that mother would wish her to be had made the young girl docile and patient, and she now determined to be filial and dutiful to her father's wife in all aspects. Everything went on apparently smoothly in the family, for some time under the new regime. There were no winds or waves of discord to ruffle the surface of everyday life, and the father was content. But it was a woman's danger to be petty and mean, and stepmothers are proverbial all the world over. And this one's heart was not as her first smiles were, and as the days and weeks grew into months, the stepmother began to treat the motherless girl unkindly, and to try and come between father and child. Sometimes she went to her husband and complained of her stepdaughter's behaviour, but the father, knowing that this was to be expected, took no notice of her ill-natured complaints. Instead of lessening his affection for his daughter as the woman desired, her grumbling only made him think of her more. The woman soon saw that he began to show more concern for his lonely child than before. This did not please her at all, and she began to turn over in her mind how she could, by some means or other, drive her stepchild out of the house. So crooked did the woman's heart become. She watched the girl carefully, and one day, peeping into her room in the early morning, 
she thought she discovered a grave enough sin of which to accuse the child to her father. The woman herself was a little frightened, too, at what she had seen. So she went at once to her husband, and wiping away some false tears, she said in a sad voice, Please give me permission to leave you today. The man was completely taken by surprise in the suddenness of her request, and wondered whatever was the matter. Do you find it so disagreeable, he asked, in my house that you can stay no longer? No, no, it has nothing to do with you. Even in my dreams, I never thought that I wished to leave your side. But if I go on living here, I am in danger of losing my life. So I think it best for all concerned that you should allow me to go home. And the woman began to weep afresh. Her husband, distressed to see her so unhappy, and thinking that he could not have heard aright, said, Tell me what you mean. How is your life in danger here? I will tell you since you asked me. Your daughter dislikes me as her stepmother. For some time past, she has shut herself up in her room, morning and evening, and looking in as I pass by, I am convinced she has made an image of me and is trying to kill me by magic art, cursing me daily. It is not safe for me to stay here. Such being the case, indeed, indeed, I must go away. We cannot live under the same roof any more. The husband listened to the dreadful tale, but he could not believe his gentle daughter guilty of such an evil act. He knew that by popular superstition, people believed that one person could cause the gradual death of another by making an image of the hated one, cursing it daily. But where had his young daughter learned such knowledge? The thing was impossible, yet he remembered having noticed that his daughter stayed much in her room of late and kept herself away from everyone, even when visitors came to the house. Putting this fact together with his wife's alarm, he thought there might be something to account for the strange story. His heart was torn between doubting his wife and trusting his child, and he knew not what to do. He decided to go at once to his daughter and try to find out the truth. Comforting his wife and assuring her that her fears were groundless, he glided quietly to his daughter's room. The girl had for a long time past been very unhappy. She had tried by amiability and obedience to show her goodwill and to mollify the new wife and to break down that wall of prejudice and misunderstanding that she knew generally stood between step-parents and their stepchildren. But she soon found that her efforts were in vain. The stepmother never trusted her and seemed to misinterpret all her actions and the poor child knew very well that she often carried unkind and untrue tales to her father. She could not help comparing her present unhappy condition with the time when her own mother was alive only little more than a year ago. So great a change in this short time. Morning and evening she wept over the remembrance. Whenever she could, she went to her room and sliding the screens to, took out the mirror and gazed as she thought at her mother's face. It was the only comfort she had in these wretched days. Her father found her occupied in this way. Pushing aside the fusama, he saw her bending over something or other very intently, looking over her shoulder to see who entered her room. The girl was surprised to see her father, for he generally sent for her when he wished to speak to her. 
she was also confused at being found looking at the mirror for she had never told anyone of her mother's last promise but had kept it in the sacred secret of her heart so before turning to her father she slipped the mirror into her long sleeve her father noting her confusion and her act of hiding something said in a severe manner daughter what are you doing here and what is that you have hidden in your sleeve the girl was frightened by her father's severity never had he spoken to her in such a tone her confusion changed to apprehension her colour from scarlet to white she sat dumb and shamefaced unable to reply appearances were certainly against her the young girl looked guilty and the father thinking that perhaps after all what his wife had told him was true spoke angrily then is it really true that you are daily cursing your stepmother and praying for her death have you forgotten what i told you that although she is your stepmother you must be obedient and loyal to her what evil spirit has taken possession of your heart that you should be so wicked you have certainly changed my daughter what has made you so disobedient and unfaithful and the father's eyes filled with sudden tears to think that he should have to upbraid his daughter this way she on her part did not know what he meant for she had never heard of the superstition that by praying over an image it is possible to cause the death of a hated person but she saw that she must speak and clear herself now she loved her father dearly and could not bear the idea of his anger she put out her hand on his knee deprecatingly father father do not say such dreadful things to me i am still your obedient child indeed i am however stupid i may be i should never be able to curse any one who belonged to you much less pray for the death of one you love surely someone has been telling you lies and you are dazed and you know not what to say or some evil spirit has taken possession of your heart as for me i do not know no not so much as a dewdrop of the evil thing of which you accuse me but the father remembered that she had hidden something away when he first entered the room and even this earnest protest did not satisfy him he wished to clear his doubts for once and for all then why are you always alone in your room these days and tell me what is that that you have hidden in your sleeve show it to me at once then the daughter though shy of confessing how she had cherished her mother's memory, saw that she must tell her father all in order to clear herself. So she slipped the mirror out from her long sleeve and laid it before him. This, she said, is what you saw me looking at just now. Why, he said in great surprise, this is the mirror that I bought as a gift to your mother when I went up to the capital many years ago. And so you have kept it all this time. Now why do you spend so much of your time before this mirror? Then she told him of her mother's last words and of how she had promised to meet her child whenever she looked into the glass. But still the father could not understand the simplicity of his daughter's character in not knowing that what she saw reflected in the mirror was in reality her own face and not that of her mother. What do you mean? he asked. I do not understand how you can meet the soul of your lost mother by looking in this mirror. It is indeed true, said the girl, and if you don't believe what I say, look for yourself. 
and she placed the mirror before her there looking back from the smooth metal disc was her own sweet face she pointed to the reflection seriously do you doubt me still she said earnestly looking up into his face with an exclamation of sudden understanding the father smote his two hands together how stupid i am at last i understand your face is as like your mother's as the two sides of a melon thus you have looked at the reflection of your face all this time thinking that you were brought face to face with your lost mother you are truly a faithful child it seems at first a stupid thing to have done but it is not really so it shows how deep has been your filial piety and how innocent your heart living in constant remembrance of your lost mother has helped you to grow like her in character how clever it was of her to tell you to do this i admire and respect you my daughter and i am ashamed to think that for one instant i believed your suspicious stepmother's story and suspected you of evil and came with the intention of scolding you severely while all this time you have been so true and good before you have no countenance left i beg you to forgive me and here the father wept he thought of how lonely the poor girl must have been and for all that she must have suffered under her stepmother's treatment his daughter steadfastly keeping her faith and simplicity in the midst of such adverse circumstances bearing all her troubles with so much patience and amiability made him compare her to the lotus which rears its blossom of dazzling beauty out of the slime and mud of the moats and ponds fitting emblem of a heart which keeps itself unsullied while passing through the world the stepmother anxious to know what would happen had all this while been standing outside the room she had grown interested and had gradually pushed the sliding screen back till she could see all that went on at this moment she suddenly entered the room dropping to the mats she bowed her head over her outspread hands before her stepdaughter i am ashamed i am ashamed she exclaimed in broken tones i did not know what a filial child you were through no fault of yours but with a stepmother's jealous heart i have disliked you all this time hating you so much myself it was but natural that i should think you reciprocated the feeling and thus when i saw you higher so often to your room i followed you and when i saw you gaze daily into the mirror for long intervals i concluded that you had found out how i disliked you and that you were out for revenge trying to take my life by magic art as long as i live i shall never forget the wrong i have done you in so misjudging you and in causing your father to suspect you from this day i throw away my old and wicked heart and in its place i put a new one clean and full of repentance i shall think of you as a child that i have borne myself i shall love and cherish you with all my heart and thus try to make up for all the unhappiness i have caused you therefore please throw into the water all that has gone before you and give me i beg of you some of the filial love that you have hitherto given to your own lost mother thus did the unkind stepmother humble herself and ask for forgiveness of the girl she had so wronged 
such was the sweetness of the girl's disposition that she willingly forgave her stepmother and never bore a moment's resentment or malice towards her afterwards the father saw by his wife's face that she was truly sorry for the past and was greatly relieved to see the terrible misunderstanding wiped out of remembrance by both the wrongdoer and the wronged from this time on the three lived together as happily as fish in water no such trouble ever darkened the home again and the young girl gradually forgot that year of unhappiness in the tender love and care that her stepmother now bestowed on her her patience and goodness were rewarded at last end of the mirror of matsuyama a story of old japan from japanese fairy tales compiled by yay theodora ozaki a bridegroom for miss mole from korean fairy tales by william elliot griffiths by the river chinjin stands the great stone image or mivek that was cut out of the solid rock ages ago its base lies far beneath the ground and around its granite cap many feet square the storm clouds gather and play as they roll down the mountain down under the earth near the mighty colossus lived a soft-furred mole and his wife one day a daughter was born to them it was the most wonderful mole baby that ever was known the father was so proud of his lovely offspring that he determined to marry her only to the grandest thing in the whole universe nothing else would satisfy his pride in the beautiful creature he called his own father mole sought long and hard to find out where and what in all nature was considered the most wonderful he called in his neighbors and talked over the matter with them then he visited the king of the moles and asked the wise ones in his court to decide for him one and all agreed that the great blue sky was above everything else in glory and greatness so up to the sky the mole father went and offered his daughter to be the bride of the great blue telling how with his vast azure robe the sky had the reputation both on the earth and under it of being the greatest thing in the universe but much to the mole father's surprise the sky declined no i am not the greatest i must refer you to the sun he controls me for he can make it day or night as he pleases only when he rises can i wear my bright colors when he goes down darkness covers the world and men do not see me at all but the stars instead better take your charming daughter to him so to the sun went mr mole and though afraid to look directly into his face he made his plea he would have the sun marry his attractive daughter but the mighty luminary that usually seemed so fierce dazzling men's eyesight and able to burn up the grass in the field seemed suddenly very modest instead of accepting at once the offer the son said to the father 
Alas, I am not master. The cloud is greater than I, for he is able to cover me up and make me invisible for days and weeks. I am not as powerful as you think me to be. Let me advise you to offer your daughter to the cloud. Surprised at this, the mole father looked quite disappointed. Now he was in doubt as to what time he had best propose to the cloud. When it was silvery white and glistening in a summer afternoon, or when it was black and threatening a tempest. However, his ambition to get for his daughter the mightiest possible bridegroom prompted him to wait until the lightning flashed and the thunder rolled. Then, appearing before the terrible dark cloud that shot out fire, he told of the charms of his wonderful daughter and offered her as bride. But why do you come to me? asked the cloud, its face inky black with the wrath of a storm and its eyes red with the fires of lightning. Because you are not only the greatest thing in the universe, but you have proved it by your terrible power, replied the father mole. At this the cloud ceased its rolling, stopped its fire and thunder, and almost laughed. So far from being the greatest thing in the world, I am not even my own master. See already how the wind is driving me. Soon I shall be invisible, dissolved in air. Let me commend you to the wind. The master of the cloud will make a grand son-in-law. Whereupon Papa Mole waited until the wind calmed down after blowing away the clouds. Then, telling of his daughter's accomplishments and loveliness, he made proffer of his only child as bride to the wind. But the wind was not half so proud as the mole father had expected to find him. Very modest, almost bashful seemed the wind, as he confessed that before Mirvek, the colossal stone image, his power was naught. Why, I smite that great stone face, and its eyes do not even blink. I roar in his ears, and he minds it not. I try to make him sneeze, but he will not. Smite him as I might, he still stands unmoved and smiling. Alas, no, I am not the grandest thing in the universe, while Mivek stands. Go to him, he alone is worthy to marry your daughter. By this time the mole father was not only footsore and weary, but much discouraged also. Evidently all appreciated his shining daughter, but would he be able, after all, to get her a worthy husband? He rested himself a while, and then proceeded to Mivek, the colossus of granite, as large as a lighthouse, its head far up in the air, but with ears ready to hear. The mole father squeaked out compliments to the image, as being, by common confession, the greatest thing on earth. He presented his request for a son-in-law, and then in detail mentioned the accomplishments of his daughter, sounding her praise at great length. Indeed, he almost ruined his case by talking so long. 
With stony patience, Mivek listened to the proud father with a twinkle in his white granite eyes. When his lips moved, he was heard to say, Fond parent, what you say is true. I am great. I care not for the sky day or night, for I remain the same in daylight and darkness. I fear not the sun that cannot melt me, nor the frost that is not able to make me crumble. Cold or hot, in summer or in winter time, I remain unchanged. The clouds come and go, but they cannot move me. Their fire and noise, lightning and thunder, I fear not. Yes, I am great. Then the stone lips closed again. You will make then a good bridegroom for my daughter? You will marry her, I understand? Asked the proud father as his hopes began to rise, though he was still doubtful. I would gladly do so if I were greatest, but I am not, said Mirvek. Down under my feet is the mole. He digs with his shovel-like hands and makes burrows day and night. His might I cannot resist. Soon he shall undermine my base, and I shall topple down and lie like a common stone along the earth. Yes, by universal confession, the mole is the greatest thing in the universe, and to him I yield. Better marry your daughter to him. So, after all his journeying, the father sought no further. Advised on all sides, and opinion being unanimous, he found out that the mole was the greatest thing in the universe. His daughter's bridegroom was found at home, and of the same family of creatures. He married her to a young and handsome mole, and great was the joy and rejoicing at the wedding. The pair were well mated, and lived happily ever afterwards. End of A Bridegroom for Miss Mole by William Elliot Griffiths Prometheus and Pandora from A Book of Myths by Jean Lang Those who are interested in watching the mental development of a child must have noted that when the baby has learned to speak, even a little, it begins to show its growing intelligence by asking questions. What is this it would seem at first to ask with regard to simple things that, to it, are still mysteries? Soon it arrives at the more far-reaching inquiries. Why is this so? How did this happen? And, as the child's mental growth continues, the painstaking and conscientious parent or guardian is many times faced by questions which lack of knowledge or a sensitive honesty prevents him from answering either with assurance or with ingenuity. As with the child, so it has ever been with the human race. Man has always come into the world asking, how, why, what? And so the Hebrew, the Greek, the Maori, the Australian blackfellow, the Norseman, in a word, each race of mankind, has formed for itself an explanation of existence, an answer to the questions of the groping child mind. Who made the world? What is God? What made a god think of fire and air and water? Why am I, I? 
Into the explanation of creation and existence given by the Greeks come the stories of Prometheus and of Pandora. The world, as first it was to the Greeks, was such a world as the one of which we read in the book of Genesis, without form and void. It was a sunless world in which land, air, and sea were mixed up together, and over which reigned a deity called Chaos. With him ruled the goddess of night, and their son was Erebus, god of darkness. When the two beautiful children of Erebus, light and day, had flooded formless space with their radiance, Eros, the god of love, was born. And light and day and love, working together, turned discord into harmony, and made the earth, the sea, and the sky into one perfect whole. A giant race, a race of titans, in time populated this newly made earth. And of these, one of the mightiest was Prometheus. To him, and to his brother Epimetheus, was entrusted by Eros the distribution of the gifts of faculties and of instincts to all the living creatures in the world, and the task of making a creature lower than the gods, something less great than the titans, yet in knowledge and in understanding, infinitely higher than the beasts and birds and fishes. At the hands of the Titan brothers, birds, beasts, and fishes had fared handsomely. They were titanic in their generosity, and so prodigal had they been in their gifts, that when they would fain have carried out the commands of Eros, they found that nothing was left for the equipment of this being to be called man. Yet, nothing daunted, Prometheus took some clay from the ground at his feet, moistened it with water, and fashioned it into an image in form like the gods. Into its nostrils, Eros breathed the spirit of life. Pallas Athena endowed it with a soul, and the first man looked wonderingly round on the earth that was to be his heritage. Prometheus, proud of the beautiful thing of his own creation, would fain have given man a worthy gift, but no gift remained for him. He was naked, unprotected, more helpless than any of the beasts of the field, more to be pitied than any of them, in that he had a soul to suffer. Surely Zeus the All-Powerful, ruler of Olympus, would have compassion on man. But Prometheus looked to Zeus in vain. Compassion he had none. Then, in infinite pity, Prometheus bethought himself of a power belonging to the gods alone, and unshared by any living creature on the earth. We shall give fire to the man whom we have made, he said to Epimetheus. To Epimetheus this seemed an impossibility, but to Prometheus nothing was impossible. He bided his time, and, unseen by the gods, he made his way into Olympus, lighted a hollow torch with a spark from the chariot of the sun, and hastened back to earth with this royal gift to man. Assuredly, no other gift could have brought him more completely the empire that has since been his. No longer did he tremble and cower in the darkness of caves when Zeus hurled his lightnings across the sky. No more did he dread the animals that hunted him and drove him in terror before them. Armed with fire, the beasts became his vassals. With fire he forged weapons, defied the frost and cold, coined money, made implements for tillage, introduced the arts, and was able to destroy as well as to create. From his throne on Olympus, Zeus looked down on the earth and saw, with wonder, airy columns of blue-gray smoke that curled upwards to the sky. He watched more closely and realized with terrible wrath that the moving flowers of red and gold that he saw in that land that the Titans shared with men 
came from fire that had hitherto been the gods' own sacred power. Speedily, he assembled a council of the gods to mete out to Prometheus a punishment fit for the blasphemous daring of his crime. This council decided at length to create a thing that should forevermore charm the souls and hearts of men, and yet, forevermore, be man's undoing. To Vulcan, god of fire, whose province Prometheus had insulted, was given the work of fashioning out of clay and water the creature by which the honor of the gods was to be avenged. The lame Vulcan, says Hesiod, poet of Greek mythology, formed out of the earth an image resembling a chaste virgin. Pallas Athena, of the blue eyes, hastened to ornament her and to robe her in a white tunic. She dressed on the crown of her head a long veil, skillfully fashioned and admirable to see. She crowned her forehead with graceful garlands of newly opened flowers and a golden diadem that the lame Vulcan, the illustrious god, had made with his own hands to please the puissant Jove. On this crown, Vulcan had chiseled the innumerable animals that the continents and the sea nourish in their bosoms, all endowed with a marvelous grace, and apparently alive. When he had finally completed, instead of some useful work, this illustrious masterpiece, he brought into the assembly this virgin, proud of the ornaments with which she had been decked by the blue-eyed goddess, daughter of a powerful sire. To this beautiful creature, destined by the gods to be man's destroyer, each of them gave a gift. From Aphrodite, she got beauty. From Apollo, music. From Hermes, the gift of a winning tongue. And when all that great company in Olympus had bestowed their gifts, they named the woman Pandora, gifted by all the gods. Thus equipped for victory, Pandora was led by Hermes to the world that was thenceforward to be her home. As a gift from the gods, she was presented to Prometheus. But Prometheus, gazing in wonder at the violet-blue eyes bestowed by Aphrodite, that looked wonderingly back into his own as if they were indeed as innocent as two violets wet with the morning dew, hardened his great heart and would have none of her. As a hero, a worthy descendant of Titans, said in later years, Timeo Danaeus et Donna Ferentis, I fear the Greeks, even when they bring gifts. And Prometheus, the greatly daring, knowing that he merited the anger of the gods, saw treachery in a gift so outwardly perfect. Not only would he not accept this exquisite creature for his own, but he hastened to caution his brother also to refuse her. But well were they named Prometheus, forethought, and Epimetheus, afterthought. For Epimetheus, it was enough to look at this peerless woman, sent from the gods, for him to love her and to believe in her utterly, she was the fairest thing on earth, worthy indeed of the deathless gods who had created her. Perfect, too, was the happiness that she brought with her to Epimetheus. Before her coming, as he well knew now, the fair world had been incomplete. Since she came, the fragrant flowers had grown more sweet for him, the song of the birds more full of melody. He found new life in Pandora, and marveled how his brother could ever have fancied that she could bring to the world aught but peace and joyousness. Now, when the gods had entrusted to the Titan brothers the endowment of all living things upon the earth, they had been careful to withhold everything that might bring into the world pain, sickness, anxiety, bitterness of heart, remorse, or soul-crushing sorrow. All these hurtful things were imprisoned in a coffer 
which was given into the care of the trusty Epimetheus. To Pandora, the world into which she came was all fresh, all new, quite full of unexpected joys and delightful surprises. It was a world of mystery, but mystery of which her great, adoring, simple titan held the golden key. When she saw the coffer, which never was opened, what then more natural than that she should ask Epimetheus what it contained? But the contents were known only to the gods. Epimetheus was unable to answer. Day by day, the curiosity of Pandora increased. To her, the gods had never given anything but good. Surely there must be here gifts more precious still. What if the Olympians had destined her to be the one to open the casket, and had sent her to earth in order that she might bestow on this dear world, on the men who lived on it, and on her own magnificent titan, happiness and blessings, which only the minds of the gods could have conceived. Thus did there come a day when Pandora, unconscious instrument in the hands of a vengeful Olympian, in all faith and with the courage that is born of faith and of love, opened the lid of the prison house of evil. And as from coffers in the old Egyptian tombs, the live plague can still rush forth and slay. The long-imprisoned evils rushed forth upon the fair earth and on the human beings who lived on it. Malignant, ruthless, fierce, treacherous, and cruel, poisoning, slaying, devouring. Plague and pestilence and murder, envy and malice and revenge, and all viciousness. An ugly wolf pack indeed was that one let loose by Pandora. Terror, doubt, misery had all rushed straightway to attack her heart while the evils of which she had never dreamed stung mind and soul into dismay and horror, when, by hastily shutting the lid of the coffer, she tried to undo the evil she had done. And lo, she found that the gods had imprisoned one good gift only in this inferno of horrors and of ugliness. In the world, there had never been any need of hope. What work was there for hope to do where all was perfect, and where each creature possessed the desire of body and of heart? Therefore hope was thrust into the chest that held the evils, a star in a black night, a lily growing on a dung heap. And as Pandora, white-lipped and trembling, looked into the otherwise empty box, courage came back to her heart, and Epimetheus let fall to his side the arm that would have slain the woman of his love, because there came to him, like a draft of wine to a warrior spent in battle, an imperial vision of the sons of men through all the eons to come combating all evils of body and of soul, going on conquering and to conquer. Thus, saved by hope, the titan and the woman faced the future, and for them the vengeance of the gods was stayed. Yet I argue not against heaven's hand or will, nor bait a jot of heart or hope, but still bear up and steer right onward. So spoke Milton, the blind titan of the seventeenth century. And Shakespeare says, True hope is swift, and flies with swallows' wings. Kings it makes gods, and meaner creatures kings. Upon the earth, and on the children of men who were as gods in their knowledge and mastery of the force of fire, Jupiter had had his revenge. For Prometheus he reserved another punishment. He, the greatly daring, once the dear friend and companion of Zeus himself, was chained to a rock on Mount Caucasus, by the vindictive deity. There, on a dizzying height, his body thrust against the sun-baked rock. Prometheus had to endure the torment 
of having a foul-beaked vulture tear out his liver, as though he were a piece of carrion lying on the mountainside. All day, while the sun mercilessly smote him and the blue sky turned from red to black before his pain-racked eyes, the torture went on. Each night, when the filthy bird of prey that worked the will of the gods spread its dark wings and flew back to its airy, the titan endured the cruel mercy of having his body grow whole once more. But with daybreak there came again the silent shadow, the smell of the unclean thing, and again, with fierce beak and talons, the vulture greedily began its work. Thirty thousand years was the time of his sentence, and yet Prometheus knew that at any moment he could have brought his torment to an end. A secret was his, a mighty secret, the revelation of which would have brought him the mercy of Zeus, and have reinstated him in the favor of the all-powerful God. Yet did he prefer to endure his agonies, rather than to free himself by bowing to the desires of a tyrant who had caused man to be made, yet denied to man those gifts that made him nobler than the beasts and raised him almost to the heights of the Olympians. Thus for him the weary centuries dragged by, in suffering that knew no respite, in endurance that the gods might have ended. Prometheus had brought an imperial gift to the men that he had made, and imperially he paid the penalty. Three thousand years of sleep unsheltered hours, and moments I divided by keen pangs, till they seemed years, torture and solitude, scorn and despair. These are mine empire, more glorious far than that which thou surveyest from thine unenvied throne, O mighty God. Almighty, had I deigned to share the shame of thine ill tyranny, and hung not here nailed to this wall of eagle-baffling mountain, black, wintry, dead, unmeasured, without herb, insect, or beast, or shape, or sound of life. Ah, me, alas, pain, pain ever, forever. Shelley Titan, to whose immortal eyes the sufferings of mortality, seen in their sad reality, were not as things that gods despise, what was thy pity's recompense? A silent suffering and intense? The rock, the vulture, and the chain all that the proud can feel of pain, the agony they do not show, the suffocating sense of woe, which speaks but in its loneliness, and then is jealous lest the sky should have a listener, nor will sigh until its voice is echoless. Byron. Yet I am still Prometheus, wiser grown by years of solitude, that holds apart the past and future, giving the soul room to search into itself and long commune with this eternal silence. More a god in my long suffering and strength to meet with equal front the direst shafts of fate than thou in thy faint-hearted despotism. Therefore, great heart, bear up. Thou art but type of what all lofty spirits endure that fain would win men back to strength and peace through love. Each hath his lonely peak, and on each heart envy, or scorn, or hatred, tears lifelong with vulture beak yet the high soul is left, and faith which is but hope grown wise, and love and patience which at last shall overcome. Lowell End of Prometheus and Pandora From A Book of Myths by Jean Lang Why the whale spouts, the starfish is ragged, and the native bear has strong arms. 
from Some Myths and Legends of the Australian Aborigines by W.E. Thomas. Many years ago, when this old world was young, all the animals now living in Australia were men. At that time, they lived in a distant land across the ocean, and having heard of the wonderful hunting grounds in Australia, they determined to leave their country and sail to this sunny land in a canoe. They knew that the voyage would be a long and dangerous one. Storms would sweep across the sea and lash the waves into a white fury. The wind would howl like the evil spirits of the forest, the lightning flash across the sky like writhing golden snakes, and death would hide in waiting for them beneath the brown sea kelp. It was therefore necessary for them to have a very strong canoe for the journey. The whale, who was the biggest of all the men, had a great strong canoe that could weather the wildest storm, but he was a very selfish fellow and would not allow anybody the use of it. As it was necessary to have the canoe, his companions watched for a suitable opportunity to steal it and start on their long and lonely journey. But the whale was a cunning creature. He always kept very strict guard over the canoe and would not leave it alone for a moment. The other people were at their wits' end to solve the problem of stealing the canoe, and as a last resource, they held a great council to consider the question. Many suggestions were put forward, but none was practical. It seemed an impossible task, until the starfish came forward to place his suggestion before the council. Now, the starfish was a very intimate friend of the whale, so when he spoke, Everybody was very silent and attentive. He hesitated for a moment and then said, Unless we get a very big canoe, it will be impossible to sail to the new hunting grounds, where the fire of the sun never dies, the sea sand is soft and golden, and there is plenty of food. I shall get my friend the whale to leave his canoe, and I shall keep him interested for a long time. When I give you the signal, steal silently away with it, as fast as you can. The other men were so excited at the proposal that they all spoke at once and asked, How will you do it? But the starfish looked very wise and said, Your business is to steal the canoe and mine to keep the whale occupied while you do it. Some days later, the starfish paid a friendly visit to the whale, and after talking for some time, he said, I have noticed what a great number of vermin you have in your hair. They must be very uncomfortable. Let me catch them for you. The whale, being greatly troubled with vermin in his head, readily agreed to the kind offer of his friend, the starfish. The whale moored his canoe in deep water and sat on a rock. Starfish placed his friend's head in his lap and proceeded to hunt diligently for the vermin. While he was doing so, he told many funny stories and occupied the attention of the whale. The starfish then gave the signal to the men who were waiting, and they seized the canoe and sailed off. But the whale was very suspicious. For a short time he would forget his canoe, but then he would suddenly remember it and say, Is my canoe all right? The starfish had cunningly provided himself with a piece of bark, and tapping it on the rock, in imitation of the boat bumping with the rise and fall of the sea, he would answer, Yes, this is it, I am tapping with my hand. It is a very fine canoe. He continued to tell funny stories to the whale. At the same time, he scratched very hard around his ears in order to silence the sound of the oars splashing in the water 
as the other men rowed away with the canoe. After some time, the whale grew tired of his friend's attention and storytelling and decided to have a look at the canoe himself. When he looked around and found the canoe missing, he could hardly believe it. He rubbed his eyes and looked again. Away in the distance, he could see the vanishing shape of his canoe. Then the truth dawned upon him. He had been tricked. The whale was very angry and beat the starfish unmercifully. Throwing him upon the rocks, he made great ragged cuts in the faithless creature. The starfish was so exhausted that he rolled off the rocks and hid himself in the soft sand. It is on account of this cruel beating that, even to the present day, the starfish has a very ragged and torn appearance and always hides himself in the sand. After beating the friend who had betrayed him, the whale jumped into the water and chased the men in the canoe. Great white waves rose and fell as he churned his way through the water, and out of a wound in his head which the starfish had made, he spouted water high into the air. The whale continued his restless chase, and when the men in the canoe saw him, they said, He is gaining on us, and when he catches us, we shall all be drowned. But the native bear, who was in charge of the oars, said, There is no need to be afraid. Look at my arms. They are strong enough to row the canoe out of danger. This reassured his companions, and the chase continued. The voyage lasted many days and nights. During the day, the hot sun beat down on the men in the canoe, and at night the cold winds chilled them. But there was no escape, they must go on. By day and night they could see the whale spouting in his fury and churning the sea into foam with the lashing of his tail. At last land was sighted, and the men rowed very fast towards it. When they landed from the canoe they were very weary and sat down on the sand to rest. But the native companion, who was always a very lively fellow and fond of dancing, danced upon the bottom of the canoe until he made a hole in it. He then pushed it a short distance from the shore, where it settled down in the water and became the small island that is now at the entrance of Lake Illawarra. When the whale arrived at the landing place, he saw the men on shore and his canoe wrecked. He traveled along the coast and spouted water with anger as he thought of the trick that had been played on him and of the wreck of his beloved canoe. Even to the present day, whales spout, the starfish is ragged and torn, and the blackfellow still roams across the wild wastes of Australia. End of Why the Whale Spouts, the Starfish is Ragged, and the Native Bear Has Strong Arms by W.E. Thomas Yuki Ona by Lafcadio Hearn In a village of Musashi province, there lived two woodcutters, Mosaku and Minokichi. At the time of which I'm speaking, Mosaku was an old man, and Minokichi, his apprentice, was a lad of 18 years. Every day they went together to a forest situated about five miles from their village. On the way to that forest, there is a wide river to cross and there is a ferry boat. Several times a bridge was built where the ferry is, but the bridge was each time carried away by a flood. No common bridge can resist the current there when the river rises. Mosaku and Minokichi were on their way home one very cold evening when a great snowstorm overtook them. They reached the ferry and they found that the boatman had gone away, leaving his boat on the other side of the river. It was no day for swimming, and the woodcutters took shelter in the ferryman's hut, thinking themselves lucky to find any shelter at all. 
There was no brazier in the hut, nor any place in which to make a fire. It was only a two-mat hut with a single door, but no window. Mosaku and Minokichi fastened the door and lay down to rest with their straw raincoats over them. At first they did not feel very cold, and they thought that the storm would soon be over. The old man almost immediately fell asleep, but the boy, Minokichi, lay awake a long time listening to the awful wind and the continual slashing of the snow against the door. The river was roaring, and the hut swayed and creaked like a junk at sea. It was a terrible storm, and the air was every moment becoming colder, and Minokichi shivered under his raincoat. But at last, in spite of the cold, he too fell asleep. He was awakened by a showering of snow in his face. The door of the hut had been forced open, and by the snow light, Yuki Akari, he saw a woman in the room, a woman all in white. She was bending above Mosaku and blowing her breath upon him, and her breath was like a bright white smoke. Almost in the same moment she turned to Minokichi and stooped over him. He tried to cry out, but found that he could not utter any sound. The white woman bent down over him, lower and lower, until her face almost touched him, and he saw that she was very beautiful, though her eyes made him afraid. For a little time she continued to look at him. Then she smiled, and she whispered, I intended to treat you like the other man, but I cannot help feeling some pity for you, because you are so young. You are a pretty boy, Minokichi, and I will not hurt you now. But if you ever tell anybody, even your own mother, about what you have seen this night, I shall know it, and then I will kill you. Remember what I say. With these words, she turned from him and passed through the doorway. Then he found himself able to move, and he sprang up and looked out. But the woman was nowhere to be seen, and the snow was driving furiously into the hut. Minokichi closed the door and secured it by fixing several billets of wood against it. He wondered if the wind had blown it open. He thought that he might have been only dreaming, and might have mistaken the gleam of the snow light in the doorway for the figure of a white woman, but he could not be sure. He called to Masaku and was frightened because the old man did not answer. He put out his hand in the dark and touched Masaku's face and found that it was ice, Mosaku was stark and dead. By dawn the storm was over, and when the ferryman returned to his station a little after sunrise, he found Minokichi lying senseless beside the frozen body of Mosaku. Minokichi was promptly cared for, and soon came to himself, but he remained a long time ill from the effects of the cold of that terrible night. He had been greatly frightened also by the old man's death but he said nothing about the vision of the woman in white. As soon as he got well again, he returned to his calling, going alone every morning to the forest and coming back at nightfall with his bundles of wood, which his mother helped him to sell. One evening, in the winter of the following year, as he was on his way home, he overtook a girl who happened to be traveling by the same road. She was a tall, slim girl, very good-looking, and she answered Minokichi's greeting in a voice as pleasant to the ear as the voice of a songbird. Then he walked beside her, and they began to talk. The girl said that her name was Oyuki, that she had lately lost both of her parents, and that she was going to Yedo, where she happened to have some poor relations, who might help her to find a situation as a servant. Minokichi soon felt charmed by this strange girl, and the more they looked at her, 
the handsomer she appeared to be. He asked her whether she was yet betrothed, and she answered laughingly that she was free. Then, in her turn, she asked Minokichi whether he was married or pledged to marry, and he told her that, although he had only a widowed mother to support, the question of an honorable daughter-in-law had not yet been considered, as he was very young. After these confidences, they walked on for a long while without speaking. But, as the proverb declares, Kiga areba memokuchi horo nimono wo io. When the wish is there, the eyes can say as much as the mouth. By the time they reached the village, they had become very much pleased with each other. And then Minokichi asked Oyuki to rest a while at his house. After some shy hesitation, she went there with him, and his mother made her welcome and prepared a warm meal for her. Oyuki behaved so nicely that Minokichi's mother took a sudden fancy to her and persuaded her to delay her journey to Yedo. And the natural end of the matter was that Yuki never went to Yedo at all. She remained in the house as an honorable daughter-in-law. Oyuki proved to be a very good daughter-in-law. When Minokichi's mother came to die some five years later, her last words were words of affection and praise for the wife of her son. And Oyuki bore Minokichi ten children, boys and girls, handsome children, all of them, and very fair of skin. The country folk thought Oyuki a wonderful person, by nature different from themselves. Most of the peasant women age early, but Oyuki, even after having become the mother of ten children, looked as young and fresh as on the day when she had first come to the village. One night, after the children had gone to sleep, Oyuki was sewing by the light of a paper lamp, and Minokichi, watching her, said, To see you sewing there, with the light on your face, makes me think of a strange thing that happened when I was a lad of eighteen. I then saw somebody as beautiful and white as you are now. Indeed, she was very like you. Without lifting her eyes from her work, Oyuki responded, Tell me about her. Where did you see her? Then Minokichi told her about the terrible night in the ferryman's hut, and about the white woman that had stooped above him, smiling and whispering, and about the silent death of old Musaku. And he said, Asleep or awake, that was the only time that I saw a being as beautiful as you. Of course, she was not a human being, and I was afraid of her, very much afraid. But she was so white. Indeed, I have never been sure whether it was a dream that I saw, or the woman of the snow. Oyuki flung down her sewing and arose, and bowed above Minokichi where he sat and shrieked into his face. It was I, 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 Yuki it was, and I told you then that I would kill you if you ever said one word about it. But for those children asleep there, I would kill you this moment, and now you had better take very, very good care of them, for if ever they have reason to complain of you, I will treat you as you deserve. Even as she screamed, her voice became thin, like a crying of wind. Then she melted into a bright white mist that spired to the roof beams and shuddered away through the smoke hole. Never again was she seen. End of Yuki Ona by Lafcadio Hearn, 